0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Let's begin with our top story, though. Thousands of protesters taking to the streets of Hong Kong for the second time in less than a week, blocking roads around the financial district as lawmakers were due to begin days of debate on a controversial law that would for the first time allow extraditions to China. Police branding the demonstration a riot situation. I'm pleased to say that joining us from Hong Kong is Karen Lee, Bloomberg China government editor and she joins us on the phone. Hello to you Karen I just want to start with a very basic question amid all of the chaos just a word on the process here where this law came from and how likely it is it would pass.
2: Right. So the government has always and is still defending this as something that is needed to close what they call a loophole that would make Hong Kong a refuge for fugitives. And this is something that would allow extraditions to mainland China and Taiwan. And it has people here extremely concerned that it could, in a major way, eradicate what's left of Hong Kong's autonomy.
1: Has there been any response from China at all?
2: There has. I mean, this Hong Kong is a Chinese territory. China considers it part of China, and it has always backed the government here. And it has said over the last couple of weeks that it backs the Hong Kong government. It continues to support it. And they said that again this afternoon.
0: Carrie, one of the things that's so important in in talking to Jody Schneider through the morning with her decades of experience is how the hundreds of thousands of protesters is different than last time. What is unique about this moment for Hong Kong versus other protests we've seen?
2: You know, it's more aggressive, by all accounts, from people on the ground in this um, in this early stage. There were a lot of clashes today between riot police and protesters. There was a lot of tear gas being fired and fired fairly quickly. I mean, they hadn't been there all that long. So I think people felt like there was a real edge um, and less of a sense of hope than there had been at the start of the Occupy protests that were largely peaceful.
0: Karen Lee, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated Hong Kong government this morning.
1: Let's bring in Gideon Rose, shall we, here in New York. Yes. Really fortunate to have him. Great timing. Foreign Affairs magazine editor. Good morning to you, Gideon. Good morning. Your thoughts on that question. Does Hong Kong still have sufficient autonomy under that framework?
3: When it all comes down to whether you, how you define sufficient. Um, I I don't think the trends in uh, Hong Kong's autonomy are going in the right direction, and I think over time uh, you're going to see the natural gravitational pull of Beijing, because what's happening here is not just a, a Hong Kong story. It's a global democratization story. It's the undertow the third wave, the rise of personalized authoritarianism and institutionalized authoritarianism, and essentially the loss of the force of vital democracy promotion or vital democracy example anywhere in the world. And so what you see is authoritarian powers increasing their control and people taking to the streets to demand what they want. But you don't really have anybody backing the protesters. Who is it? Is it the Brits who are themselves in chaos? Is it the Americans in chaos? Is it Europe more generally? Who is there supporting the protesters in Hong Kong right now? Nobody. They're well, on their own. It looks like the United States is beginning
1: to stand up a little bit, Gideon. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi discussing whether this has eradicated, eroding the autonomy of, of Hong Kong and whether Hong Kong should retain special training status. Do you think that's something we will seriously debate in the coming days in the United States?
3: No, I don't think we debate anything seriously in the United States these days, so I don't see why this should be any exception. Certainly not a policy issue like this.
0: Gideon, uh, if I look at your new uh, issue of Foreign Affairs magazine on the American century, there's got to be a Chinese century as well. Elizabeth Economy, uh, affiliated with you at the Council on Foreign Relations, has made clear the fragility of President Xi's experiment. From where you sit, with all the context you have, including Mister Nathan, Professor Nathan of Columbia, writing in your new magazine, how is the state of President Xi's political strength?
3: Well, uh, that's a sixty-four thousand dollar question. If well, there good, ever was good,
0: one. I'll take sixty-three thousand two hundred eighty-two dollars. John will take the change.
3: I would, I would not bet against him. Uh, the, the fascinating question of the future of not just Chinese development, as I said, no one's ever governed a rise to economic power this quick, this large, and kept it going. Uh, so we're already in uncharted territory, but no one's ever, no country's ever progressed so much further without becoming more liberal. Uh, so that might happen too. But the fact is that it seems like um, the Essentially, American power rose over a century when China was out of the picture and Chinese power rose within the American uh, imperium. But there's never been a period in world history when the United States and China were both major big world powers together, right? There have been periods of Chinese power and American power, but now we're seeing this interesting thing because it's not going to be a replacement. It's going to be a living together, but we don't know what that world of the United States in the 21st century, and she's China in the 21st well, just, century will look okay, like. Okay,
0: very quickly here. Does America want to quote unquote live together?
3: America doesn't want, America has always wanted to secede from the world. That's how the country started. Exactly. But it can't yeah. live in splendid isolation forever. And as it grew during the 19th century and got to the 20th century, it realized it needed to take responsibility for its own security. It couldn't rely on the British anymore to protect it. It couldn't rely on others. So it started to fight world wars Late, then it fought world wars early, and then in the Cold War, it fought a world war preemptively. Instead, we're not going to allow another one to happen. And so basically, it took over a lead, and it has never allowed a share of management with another country. It's always been the United States doing right. it itself or nothing. And now we're going to have to share power, and we don't know how no. that's going to play out. The Chinese aren't used to sharing power either. That's why this is going to be so right. interesting and difficult.
0: Gideon Rose, thank you so much. Gideon, and, thank and congratulations you. Congratulations on another important issue. What happened to the American century? Lead essay, Zakaria of the post-American world. And I'd really point out Professor Nathan's uh, essay on China as well. Always good to have a guest with us who's hung out at Casbar in Coventry uh, be at the University <laughs> of Warwick, I, I just, just tell you trying that, to get that, the it, night. that it
1: didn't used to be Casbar; it used to be called the Colosseum. Oh, really? And it, was, and it was in a place in Coventry that you went nowhere near. Oh really? A- and I and I went near it quite a few <laughs> times. Just... How did you come across that? I am a
0: font of research, as Spencer Dale knows. We do our research here at Bloomberg <laughs> Surveillance. Spencer, like-
1: was it was it the Coliseum back in Coventry in your I, days? I, I'm
4: not commenting on that whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Mr.
0: Dudley's listening. Right? Yeah, okay. I,
1: I have a career here, guys, sorry. <laughs> BP's chief economist. And, of course, he used to go to the University of Warwick, as did I. Great to see you, Spencer. Good morning. Let's talk about the latest release from British Petroleum from BP. You come out with this annual review. Walk me through what you've learned. Yeah, so this is the 68th edition of BP's statistical review of world
4: energy. And it's sort of, for those who don't know it, it's a public good. We've been providing yes. s- statistics to, to the energy system for a long time now. The message from, last, um, from from yesterday's report, which looks at the data for 2018, was that in the headline data paint a worrying picture. So at a time when growing societal concerns about climate change, growing demands for action on climate change. The data for 2018 suggested both energy demand and um, uh, carbon emissions from energy use were growing at their fastest rate for years. So sort of a growing mismatch between the hopes of society for action on climate change and reality in terms of the data moving
1: stubbornly in the wrong direction. Spencer, some people will say it's ironic that it is a... Petroleum company, an oil and gas company like BP that is producing this kind of research. Uh, What do you say back to that? Well, part A, we're just providing the data and the statistics.
4: But secondly, we have been very clear, we've written many articles on this, we want a rapid transition to a low-carbon energy system just as much as anybody else. It's good for society, but for a company like us, to, to, how do you run a business like ours if you know you're on an unstable path? We much prefer um, uh, to, to get on that path towards moving towards a low-carbon energy system, and we want to be part of that yeah. process.
0: The, the history of studying demand, and, and I think you're being far too modest, the BP Statistical Review has been the foundation going back not only the 68 years, but frankly back to British Petroleum of, of before World War I. You guys have been studying the trends the longest. Do we really know demand? Do we get it all good at figuring out oil demand?
4: I, yeah, I think we do have a pretty good idea—not not to the nearest hundred thousand barrels—but I think we have a pretty strong idea on 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 oil demand. And the, the key message on on demand is it's it's been growing pretty robustly for the last four or five years, so above average growth rates for the last four years. Where's that
0: partial differential? Is it in Asia? Is is it growing because of Asia or is it?
4: Very largely through Asia. So in 2018, in our most recent review, um, we estimate that global oil demand grew by about 1.4 million barrels a day. Two thirds of that is coming from Asia, China um, and India. But interestingly, Global um, U.S. oil demand last year grew by half a million barrels a day. That's its strongest rate for over 10 years. And the story there isn't putting gasoline in, in your cars, but it was actually for a type of oil product called ethane, which is being used in the petrochemical sector. So we're seeing expansion of um, petrochemical sector in America, and
1: that's fueling the demand it's using for oil as a feedstock. We hear so much about the path towards electrification and away from gas guggling tanks here in the United States. Do you see that in the data? Is it happening, Spencer? Do you see it? Um,
4: electric cars are growing very rapidly. Um, they grew by about 2 million uh, cars uh, last year, with a stock of about 5 million cars. But just to put that in context, that's out of a global uh, uh, car pool of over a billion. Wow. So this is, at the moment, electric cars are tiny. And just to, just to put another number in, in, into the mix here, the increase in carbon emissions we saw last year from the energy system as a whole was e- roughly equal to increasing the number of cars on the planet by a third. So something like 400 million cars was the amount of carbon emissions we saw last year. number of electric cars, 2 million. So the scale of the issues we're facing here are enormous
1: relative to, to the small contribution that electric cars Where make. are the trends looking good? Are there any regions where the trends look good right now? Um, Europe continues to make
4: significant progress, so, so we are seeing falling there. The US had seen um, falling carbon, de- carbon emissions for the last 10 years, but again, 2018 was an exception. We saw growth in carbon emissions uh, last year. I think the other big um, nice encouraging trend is rapid growth in renewable energy. Renewable energy grew by over 14% okay. last year. Lord Brown
0: got way out front with big oil trying to understand the new environment, the new climate. Now it's all the vogue. I mean, Lord Brown was, you know, I'm going to say 15 years ahead of everybody else. Are you going to tell me, Spencer Dale, that big oil is actually going to get all sensitive and touchy-feely about climate change? Or is it just their PR guys saying, you know, this is what you got to do right now to mollify everyone?
4: I I don't think we're going to get sensitive and touchy-feely, I think we're going to be hard-nosed about this, but I think we'd be hard-nosed that the world needs to undertake an energy transition. It needs to move to a low-carbon energy system, and companies like BP need to take part that. What's the greatest incentive to make that happen? um, Bottom line, and we need to shift from being
1: an oil and gas company to Mm -hmm. an energy company, and we are very committed to doing that. So Spencer, I promise we won't talk about the United Kingdom, we will not talk about Brexit, but I do want to lean on your time as the Chief Economist at the Bank of England and during the financial crisis, just to get your view of what is happening in the global economy right now, if we can, if that's okay. There is some concern at the moment that maybe we're moving towards the first rate cut at the Fed, that maybe global growth is decelerating. What's your view on that right now? What is happening in the global economy? So it seems clear
4: there's been a loss of economic momentum in the global economy. Um, much of that I think is related to increasing concerns about the trade disputes. Um, much of that sort of the, the evidence for that is, is most obvious now in, in terms of finance, some of the financial market indicators. And in some of these sort of sentiment indicators, things like consumer confidence, uh, investment intentions, you haven't yet seen it in the hard data. People like the IMF uh, are suggesting that global growth this year could be something like a half a percentage point weaker than what we saw last year. So that's a slowing. It's not anything like we saw in the financial crisis, but it is a slowing. The extent to which that will come through, I think, in part depends on what happens with those trade disputes. But it also happens, as you suggested, in terms of what's the policy response here in the Fed. The Fed here has clearly shifted its position from to a more symmetric position in terms of rate cuts and rate, um, uh, and yeah. rate hikes. And in, in Asia, you're seeing China is already loosening its fiscal right. strings to support the economy.
0: One final question to all listening who want to go through the executive summary of your statistical review. What's a single distinction this, this year?
4: Um, that carbon emissions are growing at their fastest rate for eight or nine years. mean, the first understand.
0: derivatives moving.
4: Yes, if, absolutely, um, and and that's a worry, and we need to understand that, and it signals the need for more urgent action on, on climate change. Spencer Dale, thank you so Great much. Great to see you, with Spencer. BP thank you very much for
1: dropping
0: by. Tudor Jones with us today in support of Just Capital. We will, of course, get to him on how not to lose money on Wall Street. That is something he has been good at over the years. I should point out, John, he has basically invented philanthropy among the hedge fund alternative investment crew with commitment not only to more visible things, but also a long-term commitment to the Everglades his team did, – did you finance the victory of the University of Virginia in basketball this year? <laughs> did you single-handedly write the check to make that happen?
5: I'll tell you what I did. Uh, for the semifinal game, I was at home sick with a 102-degree fever. And the finals were on Monday, and uh, I had taken antibiotics, and I was well, and I was going to go up and see the finals, not mm-hmm. knowing who would win. And then I thought, hmm – I stayed at home, in my bathrobe, in front of the TV in my bedroom, can I actually afford to break the mojo of that victory, which was uh, breathtaking at the end, come from behind. Or if I go up there, will I break the mojo? So I decided not to go see the final in person, stayed at home. Same exact Mm -hmm. place, bathrobe. And there's no question that that energy force is what helped us win the fight.
0: There's no no question about that. (laughs) Just Capital. John Farrow and I have been 14 times to Davos where we've seen hitters try to make a better capitalism, a more sensitive capitalism. Why is your support of Just Capital going to be different where business leaders can reattach to the American public?
5: I think... Just capital is something that's been a long time coming in the sense that um, what we do is we ask the American public, how do you define justness in a corporation? So every year we go out and poll a perfectly demographic sample. We ask the American public. They tell us what's important. We turn those into metrics. We collect over 200,000 different data streams from the top 1,000 publicly traded companies in the United States. We use the American public's uh, indications and beliefs to rank those 1,000 companies from 1 to 1,000 on justness. And we put that out there so that all the stakeholders, employees, investors, customers, can have an understanding of who their counterparty is in business, how they are doing and align themselves with the values that are most important to the public. And the great news is that in our rankings, those that rank the highest on issues such as worker pay and treatment, uh, products, are they socially beneficial, good quality, good cost, um, C- customers, how do you treat them? Those that rank the highest are also the companies that have the highest return on equity and have the best stock price performance. So, by being just, by aligning yourselves with the values of the American public, you make money too. Um, and it's a, and it's a, it's just a fantastic thing. It was something that when we first started the the Just Capital, we didn't necessarily understand or anticipate this but it's turned out to be a wonderful outcome.
1: Our audience is itching for us to get your views on financial markets as well. I have one final question here though, whether this works both ways, whether we need to do a better job Paul, of of really communicating that business and markets can be a force for good. Do you think we're doing a good enough job of that right now?
5: No, I think we're failing which is why hopefully Just Capital can step in the void in our rankings. We have a ranking, we take the top 100 companies, we give them a seal. They're just now in the last two years, we're only five years old, and just in the last two years, they've started to adopt that seal, put it on their products. Hopefully customers will start to see it when they go to box, uh, buy a box of uh, cornflakes, maybe one's from a company that is just or that's in the top 100, one's not. Hopefully yeah. they'll choose and they'll, they'll vote with their pocketbooks for justness.
1: To markets, rate cut 101 trades. Do you think now's the time?
5: Well, I th- uh, <clears throat> certainly if you look at how the markets are pricing, uh, now would be the time. The question is, is are we going to play out like we have uh, in history? And I think the answer to that is probably yes. So Ray cut 101 is your long treasuries, your long stocks, at least initially, your long gold for sure. You're short the dollar. Um, And I think that's kind of the kind of portfolio you want to have on right now.
0: Paul Tudor Jones, Lewis Bacon, Monroe Trout, all the rest. Trend trading, the idea of getting on a trend and having the mental setup to stay on the trend. Does it work now like it used to work? Is there too much information now? Is the system bollocks up enough where trend-based trading doesn't work like it used to?
5: Well, one of the reasons that trend-based trading used to work so well, if you think about it, um, 1980, we had, we had three central banks that had 45 different rate moves in one year. So compare that to now when you're at zero rates, and I think we had four last year mm-hmm. and all those were from the US central bank. So. Trend trading works when central banks are on the move and when central banks are stuck at zero brand bounds. You don't have the elf, you don't have the volume. The environment's different, right?
0: A great theory of yours, what Ed Thorpe would call anti martingale theory, is you're in a trade, you're at a loss, and the amateurs load the boat on the loss position because of the belief it's going to go up. You don't do that, do you?
5: No. No, no, no. What do you do when you're at a loss? Oh, I cut. Uh, Before
0: you cut, what do you do is you observe a loss and you need to make a decision. Give us the Paul Tudor Jones mechanism of that.
5: Well, I think it starts way before that. Before you ever enter a trade, you figure out what do I think my reward is? What do I think my risk is? My favorite favorite metric whenever I go back and I, I, I go back to the University of Virginia every year I have for 30 years and I uh, sit in and lecture at uh, a couple of different finance classes and I always say, "Okay, listen, you don't need to go to business school. Here's all you need to know. 5 to 1." I look around. What does 5 to 1 mean? They all look at me. It's I guess they think I'm some kind of an alien. I go, "5 means you're going to risk a dollar to make 5. So you can have an 80% loss rate. You can uh, you can you can lose four times, but as long as that one time you hold on, you make the $5, you end up with a net profit." So when I ever enter a trade, I already know where I'm going to take my loss. And it just becomes nothing more than uh, like going shopping. You you know that when you're going to go there, what you're going to get. I know where, before I ever put a trade on, what my stopout point is. So for me, it's not monitoring. It's just, um, it's really trade construction that's the most important thing. And that starts before you ever
1: execute. So I've got to get onto some of the trades right now, just very quickly. Short the dollar. At some point, long stocks, at least initially. It's the initially I'm interested in. How do you come up with the time frame, the initially part of it? What's the thinking that goes into that?
5: Um, when you mean, I, I don't understand. The you rate mean, cut 101
1: trades, right. you said go long stocks initially. Right. It's the initially part I'm interested in. So
5: we're already in, in the initially phase, right? The, the rate cut 101's been going on since they stopped hiking in December. So, um we're in that phase right now. We should be yeah. long stocks right now. We're probably going to go make a new high. My guess is that we're going, right. to, we're going to go into beyond the rate cut and continue L. into new high ground.
0: Al from New Jersey emails in. He wants to know, did you own Beyond Meat?
5: No. No, no. no. I'm, I am. Uh, I love – my regular beef hamburger. I bet I'm you, like, you, you can the come hell can come back. Out of it. You can come back.
0: <laughs> Paul Tudor Turner- Jones with some serious investment wisdom there in support of Just Capital, uh, using data Paul, to find you. out where we are in the continuum of American
6: culture. Joining us from
0: Chicago David Harrow of Harris Associates as well. He's agreed to be with us today because the Brewers are half a game ahead of the Cubs, which always makes uh, for a good uh, moment. David Harrow, on international investment, is there an opportunity in Asia? And given these protests in Hong Kong, is there an opportunity in the capitalism forward of Hong Kong?
6: well not necessarily i mean we look at things again from a as you know Tom, from a very bottom up value oriented approach and we're kind of underweight that area to begin with now if these protests and the instability there continues to lead to lower prices perhaps there'll be some more opportunity but we're watching it closely Uh, Hong Kong is a place near and dear to me. I've been going there since the 1980s. It's just a fabulous place. And it's always sad to see uh, this type of situation develop. It
0: has been rocky in big cap international investment. Where's the light at the end of the David Harrow
6: tunnel? Well, there will be light at the end of the tunnel. Eventually, these things get resolved and the body heals itself. And you just tend to see... kind of a return to normalcy but you're certainly right it's it's been very rocky and volatile i would say since about the second month of 2018 and hitting some of the international issues have been you know not just what you see with us and china but don't forget the european situation brexit and the italians you know there's always something and there's always something the the silver lining is provides opportunity because it often moves price in a far different direction right. than where value is going.
0: David, I look at your portfolio, and I've just got the recent update like every other mortal out there. I don't see Fiat Chrysler. I don't see Deutsche Bank, et cetera. But what I do see is a set of European companies where I question what boards are doing. Now, we could look at Deutsche Bank at six euros per share as maybe the arch management board issue. Do you actually believe that European multinational boards represent shareholders,
6: or do they represent something else? Not to the degree of which we would hope. It has steadily improved since, I don't know, I've been doing this since 86. It certainly has improved. You've seen a better attention paid to building shareholder value but is it where we want it no and in fact i don't know if any place is hundred percent where we want it including the united states this is a problem and in fact the problem with capitalism i'm a hundred percent believer in capitalism but when you have a transitory owner base as you do in equities uh, you often have boards that think they could get away with not building and not committing themselves to building long-term shareholder value. You see, we are shareholders of Daimler, and we've kind of had some issues with the pace and the attitude towards value creation. We think this is changing. There's there's a new CEO, there's a new CFO, and we think this will be a positive step uh, in, in one of the big, blue chip European industrials. So it is slowly changing. We're very hopeful that the Daimler change in CEO means more attention to shareholder value. But you're exactly right. It's not where it should be. What's even worse than Europe, by the way, is Japan, where you know, shareholders are probably number 18 on the
1: pecking list. The Bank of Japan has tried to support that effort, as you know, David, by, uh, by buying ETFs that track companies that are doing the so-called right things. Is that working?
6: No, it's not working because their definition of right things is so muted. It's it's literally pathetic. I mean, there's companies that should for for an example have an ROE of 15, 16, 17% who sit on half their market cap in cash and have a return on equity of 6 or 7% and the, the, the you know, bank of Japan and the corporate governance there is pushing for 8% or 9%. I mean, this is like almost ludicrous we should be looking at trying to really optimize efficiency, financial, operational efficiency of these companies, and it's not happening. It's not happening yeah. fast enough, and it's barely moving the needle. I think the solution is to be welcome to outside m and
0: okay, David. And if you
6: did that, you'd see some changes.
0: David, we've got to leave it there to look at Hong Kong quickly. David Harrell, David, Oakmark, thank you. and Harris Associates, thank you so much.